I want to make an audio here having to do with the nature of the finished work of the cross. Um, as many of you have probably noticed, if you've been visitors to our website for a while, I have not posted any of my own writings um, or audios on the website for the last few years. The principal reason for that is that in um, about 2013, the summer of 2013, the Lord began to uh, really deal with my heart in a serious way concerning some very important things that I I had misunderstood or overlooked in my understanding and experience of the gospel. And rather than just immediately run out and talk about the various things that I was beginning to see more clearly, um, beginning to understand with more, I think, spirit-given understanding— uh, as I've regretfully done in the past, it seemed a lot wiser to me just to shut my mouth for a time and to allow the Lord to truly teach me and change me. And then perhaps one day to communicate what my own eyes had seen, what my ears had heard, and what I looked upon and handled with my hands concerning the word of life, as John says in First John chapter 1. I've not yet felt much freedom to talk publicly about what's been going on in my heart for the last few years. Um, I've actually had a almost constant sense of the Lord's caution not to speak beyond my measure, not to mistake vision for possession, um, not to preach what I cannot live, and more especially in the last few years, not to do anything in His name. Um, or on his behalf, without the power and direction of his spirit moving me, <clears throat> excuse me, moving me towards that. Um, I believe that a good deal of what I have preached and written in the past has come out of a spirit-given understanding of the things of God. And for that reason, I have not removed many of the teachings from the website, though I have removed quite a few. Many of you may have noticed that there's a bunch of them that have disappeared, um, much of what is contained in the various teachings online concerning the Old and New Covenants, concerning the necessity of revelation, concerning God's rejection of the fallen natural man, um, the types and shadows um, versus spiritual substance, reality in Christ, the, the kingdom of God and the priesthood, Adam and Christ, a, a lot of those things, I believe, are expressive of true uh, realities. However, weakly and sometimes flippantly, I spoke about them. There are, however, a few very significant errors in understanding that are represented in many of the teachings and in the books that I've written in past days, which I see more clearly now. And one of them in particular, I, I feel a need to clarify um, in this way by making this audio, both because of a sense I have of having misled people, however unknowingly or unwillingly I have done that, uh, and because I find myself often having to explain myself in emails or phone conversations the things that I'm hoping or trying to communicate here in this audio. So um, the subject, as I mentioned before, has to do with the finished work of the cross and how it relates to those who call themselves Christians. 
It was my former belief that those who had been truly born again of the Spirit immediately entered into what I called the finished work of the cross, where all things were already complete and perfect, and where the believer only lacked a Spirit-given view of what God had done and the automatic changes that this necessarily brought about in their heart. And though there may be a measure of truth in some of those statements, when rightly understood and applied by the Spirit of God, I believe that the general drift of what I just said is incorrect and tends to open doors to great misunderstanding and error and danger. Now, to be clear, I absolutely believe that the perfect and complete work uh, which Christ accomplished at the cross is the foundation and bedrock of our understanding uh, of our relationship with God and, and, and everything that he offers us in his Son. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, Christ was set forth as a propitiation in his blood. He offered himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. He established remission of sins that were previously committed, Romans 3.25. He created in himself a new covenant. He offered himself as a new covenant. He began a new creation, one new spiritual corporate man and opened up a bloody door for all who desire to follow him out of spiritual Egypt. Uh, I believe all of that is true, and I've talked about many of those things in the past, but I, I, I have to say now that having said and established that those things are true, there remains an extremely important question that must be rightly answered and understood, and that question is, how? When or in what way does what Christ accomplished through the cross actually affect me? Or maybe you could say, though Christ has finished his work, what has actually been finished in me? Or am I experiencing the efficacy, the power, the intended outcome of this incredible gift? Or how do I experience it? Or is it automatic? Have, have I been changed by it? Am I truly dead to sin? Is Adam truly finished in me? Those kinds of questions are what um, have been spinning around in, in my mind for the last four or five years and coming into a greater, I believe, uh, clarity. And it's here where the misunderstanding, or maybe it's better to call it the deception, comes in. Because the enemy of our souls would love for us to believe and would encourage us to believe that, and to declare to the world that despite our obvious lack of spiritual light and life and righteousness, despite the lack of holiness, without which, Hebrews 12 says, no man can see the Lord, Despite not knowing the crucifixion of our lusts or the putting off of the body of sin, despite not producing the fruits of his spirit or knowing a true conformity to his death or having the love without which Paul says we are nothing, nevertheless, it is said, somehow in God's eyes, we are as perfect as Christ is perfect because Christ is our life. Or, or that none of this really matters because we have come to a finished work. Now, 
As far as I remember, I don't believe I ever went as far in any of my teachings to say that we are already perfect or that there was no need of uh, spiritual growth in and transformation by the living Word of God. I, I, I think I always believed and always taught that um, there was a duty and a responsibility for every heart to go on to know the Lord and to seek the revelation of Christ and to journey from uh, inward Egypt to the inward promised land and to humble ourselves and cry out for truth and seek to be changed into his image from glory to glory, experiencing the inward increase of the kingdom of God. Uh, nevertheless, the way that I describe the finished work of the cross and our immediate inclusion and acceptance in it has led many people to wrongly apply the outward work of Christ to themselves, even when their hearts and lives remained in great rebellion against him. And this has caused some to say, God has done all for me, even while they have resisted and rejected what he desires to do in them. And it gave room for the flesh to keep on living to keep on reigning, to keep on thinking and willing and running and loving the world, all under a cloak of the finished work of Christ. Many, I am afraid, uh, having read my books or listened to some of my teachings, have praised the Lord for the work of the outward cross, even while they inwardly crucified again for themselves the Son of God, putting him to open shame, Hebrews 6.6. 6. And so it's for this reason I, I really want to clearly and emphatically say that this is an extremely unsound, unscriptural, and dangerous doctrine. And to whatever extent my teachings have supported it or maybe just permitted it, I'm deeply regretful and truly sorry. I really am. And have mourned before the Lord before that. Uh, whether it was intentional or, or unintentional doesn't really matter if my teachings have allowed it, supported it, or in any way given room to for people to do what I just described, then I am greatly regretful about that. And I, I want to apologize to you and to everyone in the world who's ever heard anything that I've said. Now, it's true that Christ has finished his work and has established and given us a gift that is perfect, a gift that is powerful, that is living, that is new. But the entire testimony of Scripture— both the Old Testament and the New, declares to us that though this gift is indeed purchased for us by Christ, it is then sown in the heart as a small mustard seed, the least of all seeds, which, given the right conditions, has power to fill the garden of the heart and displace all other plants. The perfect gift of God in Christ is compared by the Lord himself to a, a pinch of heavenly leaven that must fill all three measures of meal, or to a little pearl of great price that is only really obtained. It can be found and rejoiced over, but it's only really obtained and enjoyed by the loss of everything else. It's like a seed that is sown among roads, or among birds, rocks, weeds, and thorns, where... Luke 18, 15 says, The noble and good heart keeps it and bears fruit with patience. 
Or in the Old uh, Testament, it's described or compared to a small stone cut out from a mountain without hands, a stone which strikes the inward kingdom of the flesh and fills the soul with the mountain of God. Now, the gift itself, the gift is indeed perfect, but it does not immediately or automatically make men perfect. Do you see the difference? The gift is perfect but it doesn't automatically or immediately make us perfect. Much to the contrary, we are told in James 1.21 to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. We are told in Philippians 2.12 to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Peter tells us to lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking, and as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And Jesus himself, both in precept and example, manifested that the only way to grow in spiritual life is upon the narrow and difficult path of inward death, denying and even hating the life that we have in the flesh, taking up our cross daily and following him. So again, it is the gift in itself. The gift is perfect. The gift is complete. It cannot be improved. But the ground into which it falls is a hostile environment that would happily smother the seed in order to save its life or in order to produce other crops, other fruits. And because of this, the New Testament is replete with warnings and cautions and practical instructions to uh, protect, to cherish, and to even stir up the gift that was sown within. We are warned by Christ in a variety of ways that the talent or the mina is given to us for an increase. And to the servant who kept what was given without permitting its growth— The decree, now think about this, the decree of the master was take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. Now, we are warned by Paul not, in so many different verses, you have to really try to ignore them. We are warned by Paul and the others in the other apostles in the New Testament not to receive the grace of God in vain, not to insult the spirit of grace, not to trample underfoot the Son of God, not to fall away unto perdition, not to believe in vain, not to make shipwreck of our faith, etc. And the reason for these and many other warnings is that unless we give up entirely to the saving, purifying, sanctifying, and transforming power of this perfect gift, of this implanted seed, then we're going to find that the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke out the word, making it unfruitful. Obviously, it cannot kill Christ himself, but in terms of our experience of that word, it can be choked out and made unfruitful. Mark 4.19 Another way that the scriptures describe or declare the same reality, I think from maybe a different perspective, I think it's the same thing. It's the same view of how salvation works, but maybe from the other way around, is to say that we've been brought into a perfect established covenant with God. We've been brought into a perfect 
kind of relationship in Christ. We've been brought into Christ, but not not merely in Christ as a status or as a as a fixed position, but in Christ as a covenant, as a working, operating, moving covenant, a defined and ongoing relationship and way to walk with God. Uh, Isaiah says in two different places that Christ was given to us as a covenant. Isaiah 42, 6 and 49, 8. He was given to us as a covenant and this covenant, this reality of being in Christ, is the way that we must walk with him. It's the way that we must stay in him. It's the way that we must experience his powerful operation upon our souls and know his acceptance. Neither the old covenant nor the new covenant are presented to us in Scripture as one-sided, static, uh, congratulations, you're in, types of relationships. In both cases, in both the old covenant and the new covenant, those who enter into covenant with God are required to keep the covenant. That is to say, required to walk with him in a particular way and to be faithful to the boundaries of the covenant, allowing the relationship to have its transforming, purifying, teaching, purging, enlightening, crucifying, and resurrecting effect on our souls making them, uh, or making us, in the New Covenant, a people who bear the image of their Creator. That's the work of what the Covenant does. Again, the Covenant <clears throat> isn't just a year-end, high-five, uh, congratulations kind of relationship. It's a, it's a relationship that has an effect. It's a relationship that operates and works upon those who keep it. Consider God's words to the children of Israel when he first entered into covenant with them um, uh, after they came out of, out of uh, Egypt. He says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 19, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, that's the bringing us into the covenant. But look at what he says in the very next part of the same verse. He says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice— and keep my covenant, then you will be a special treasure to me above all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 4.19. In other words, the covenant is perfect. It's complete. It's a complete relationship with God. It lacks nothing, and nothing else needs to be added to it or consummated. Nevertheless, it is a relationship that works according to a specific way and operation and thus brings about specific results in all who keep it. Israel could not disobey the terms of the covenant and still claim the benefits of it. Do you see? Do you hear that? That's really important. Israel, I'm going to say it again, Israel could not disobey the terms of the covenant and still claim the benefits of it. They had to submit to God's way and thereby learn his truth, keep his statutes, offer his offerings, very specific uh, offerings, be purified from sin, from transgression, from leprosy, from defilement, etc. And it's in the same way that we cannot disobey or resist the inward working of our covenant, this powerful living relationship with God in Christ, uh, 
and still claim to be accepted in the beloved or clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are placed by God into a perfect covenant, a perfect, living, dynamic, efficacious covenant to which we must submit and by which we must be changed. And though it is spiritual and inward in nature, the new covenant has requirements, it has boundaries, it has laws, just as the old covenant did. Now, I can foresee some objecting here and saying that the old covenant, as Paul says, was weak because of the flesh, but that the new covenant now provides all that it requires through the gift of the Spirit of God. I totally agree with that. That's very true. The new covenant includes the gift of grace and truth in the inward parts. And unlike the Mosaic covenant, power is now given to become sons of God. However, the gift of the Spirit and its powerful workings in the soul, that is to say, it's cleansing, it's transforming, it's revealing, it's purging, it's teaching, these things do not happen either automatically or immediately in the human heart. Our entrance into the covenant may be immediate, but our continuance, our continuance in it, our growth in it, and its ongoing effects in us are according to our faithful abiding in the vine and submitting to the cross of Christ, walking with him, walking under the, under the cross, carrying the yoke of the cross, which is the power of God to crucify sin and self in every root and branch. I ask you to consider these scriptures, John 15, 2 and 6. Every branch in me that does not bear, every branch in me, now consider that statement, every branch in me, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. John 8, uh, verses 31 and 32. Then Jesus said to all those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Free from what? Well, he tells them in the following verses, free from sin, and not just the, the consequence of sin, not just the guilt of sin, but the power of it as well, and their inward slavery to it, which is what he's talking to them about, saying that if anyone sins, they are a slave to sin. And he's talking to them on how to be, sl- how to be free from that slavery, not just how to be free from the punishment Uh, the future punishment for sin, but how to be free from the actual nature of sin. And it is by abiding in his word, becoming his disciples indeed, knowing the truth in that way, and becoming free indeed. Now, the human heart, when not submitting to the grace of God, when not submitting to this inward working power, of his life, of his seed, of his covenant, when not abiding in the word or not abiding in the vine, which is as a cross to the fleshly nature. The human heart then is always going astray. That's what, that's what God himself says in Hebrews 3.10. They're always going astray, always resisting the grace of God, always pursuing fleshly liberties, along with the theologies and worldviews that excuse this rebellion. 
the new covenant provides the perfect remedy to this problem, a perfect way to come out of our wicked, fallen, and alienated condition by giving us a heavenly power, by planting in us a heavenly word, by, by giving us this seed of life that can destroy all of the works of the devil in our souls, a mighty spirit that can bind the strong man, enter the house, and plunder the goods. But in order to benefit from this new and better covenant, which was established on better promises, Hebrews 8.6, and which has brought in a better hope through which we can draw near to God, Hebrews 7.29, we must walk in the covenant. We must keep the covenant by submitting to the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus in order to be made free from the law of sin and death. True repentant hearts are visited in their slavery, in their condition of slavery, and they are offered a door that leads out of spiritual Egypt into a perfect covenant, into a perfect relationship with God and Christ. But after a short time of celebrating their initial victory on the banks of the Red Sea, the honest heart, just like the Egyptians did, or the, I'm sorry, the Israelites did when they came out into the wilderness, the honest heart awakens in a wilderness to find that his heart is still teeming with all sorts of Egyptian desires, Egyptian appetites, Egyptian uh, carnal expectations, wisdom from below, man-made and man-centered religious ideas, self-love, distrust of God, unclean and corrupt passions, and so much more that the enemy has built and protected. These are the goods in his house that the strong man has to plunder. The soul, having, having, having come into this covenant with God, has found a loving God, has found a living covenant. But there is a long inward journey before the reproach of Egypt is rolled away. Uh, Joshua 5, 9, where it talks about once they come into the promised land, the reproach of Egypt is rolled away from the heart. There is an inward journey before we lay, lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of us, which was what Paul is describing as his, his, what he was seeking, that thing he was after in Philippians 2, laying hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of us. The only way forward is by a careful and constant submission to the grace of God, to the indwelling seed and light of Christ, the purging and transforming effects of the covenant that God has placed us in. So, having received the implanted word, we must, again, as the author of Hebrews says, be diligent to enter into our rest. How? He tells us right there in the same chapter by obeying the living and powerful word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Read Hebrews 4.11 and Hebrews 4.12 together. Most people just start by quoting 12, but read it with 11. So that having perhaps escaped the birds that come down and pluck the seed right off of the, uh, the path, we must now be watchful uh, against the rocks, the weeds, and the thorns. 
or, or you could say having come out of the darkness of Egypt and entered into a covenant with God, let us, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, let us cleanse ourselves now from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. To suggest that this is already perfected in us merely because we have received a perfect gift is, I think, to confuse the seed with the tree, which is a deception of the enemy calculated to prevent the very purpose for which the perfect gift is given. Friends, it is the fleshly part of man. It is the fallen Adamic nature that seeks to sit down at ease, to make treaties and alliances with the Philistines, with the Philistine nature in the land, and to cry out, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah 8.11 and Ezekiel 13.10. And because I was formerly confused and deceived about this very thing, I'd like to try to um, expose some of the enemy's most subtle and successful arguments in favor of this idea. The first one is uh, as follows. Despite their often, or I'll include myself, despite our often conspicuous lack of the fruits of the Spirit or any real conformity to the image and nature of Christ, many, like me and, and many of my former teachings, base their assurance of having come to an already finished and perfected work on they base that on the verb tenses used by the apostles in their letters to the churches. They say, or I say, notice how Paul says, through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. Or um, another scripture, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, again, it's the fleshly mind which is always seeking to avoid the cross. It grabs these verses and reads these past tense verbs and insists that despite not even feeling remotely dead, despite not feeling remotely washed, sanctified, or justified, it declares that this is nevertheless true of us because these things are said to have already taken place or these things are already in the past tense. But there's a glaring and inescapable problem with this kind of reasoning that the Lord thrust in front of my eyes. Um, and it's this. This idea presupposes that what Paul says with respect to himself, I have died, or to a particular person or group of people in the church, you were washed it presupposes that those things automatically apply to everybody in every condition who might happen to be reading this letter. But why would we assume that these sorts of statements apply to us and so many other critical, uh, critical types of statements, negative types of statements, written, written with respect to other conditions, do not apply to us? Do you see what I'm saying? Why do we assume that the good things apply to us and the bad things uh, obviously don't apply to us because the same author in numerous other places tells his recipients that they are still carnal. He tells them, tells some of them that they're enemies of the cross. He tells some that they began in the spirit, but now they're seeking to be perfected in the flesh. 
uh, he tells some that they're bewitched by a false gospel, that he fears to have labored over them in vain. James addresses some of his readers as adulterers and adulteresses, double-minded men who have fattened their hearts as in the day of slaughter. Peter and Jude have even stronger words of warning and censure. Now, why do we not automatically apply these verses, these, these critical uh, verses, these cautions and warnings, why do we not apply those verses to ourselves automatically and assume that they relate to our condition? Well, I think the, uh, the answer is obvious. It's far more preferable and comforting to assume, despite all internal and external evidence, that we are in the condition of those who have submitted to the transforming power of the cross, and so we deserve to be praised and encouraged. Now, the apostles knew to whom they were writing, and their letters were written to different people in different spiritual states. That's obviously true if you think about it. John even says that in some uh, couple places he breaks it down, and, and he writes uh, to children, to young men, and to fathers in the church, and he encourages them according to their various conditions, to their, their different states. Paul writes to heavenly-minded Ephesians. He writes to carnal Corinthians. He writes to backsliding Galatians. He gives warning. He gives counsel. He gives praise, depending upon the different states of his, recipi his recipients. And as we read the scriptures, I think we should be really careful not to determine for ourselves which words um, best apply to our condition. You know, just picking and choosing which ones we'd rather apply to ourselves. I think we should allow that this allow the spirit of truth, who is the true author of all scripture, to apply his own words to us according to his understanding of our condition. I think that would be a lot wiser. Okay, another, uh, number two, um, the second common reason why people believe and teach this view of the finished work of the cross that it makes us automatically and immediately perfect is because having begun to see rightly, I, I believe, having begun to see that Christ himself is the substance and reality of salvation. In other words, salvation isn't something Christ gives you, it's Christ himself. Uh, life isn't something Christ gives you, it's Christ. Christ is life. Having begun to see that, they run ahead into a false conclusion, assuming that because Christ is perfect, that their salvation by him is also automatically perfect and complete. And these often quote um, scriptures like 1 Corinthians 1.30 and, and similar types of verses that say things like, here's, uh, this is 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ is made unto us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, there's no doubt, and I, I certainly wouldn't want to discourage anyone from seeing and believing that Christ is salvation. He is perfect. He, he is complete. He, in himself, he is unmixed, and that he is made unto us, his very life, his very nature is made unto us, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Those aren't things that Christ gives us. Those are aspects of Christ's life being made unto us. But the question that I want to pose to you, and the one that I failed to understand, is how? 
how is he made unto us these things? How is he made unto us redemption and righteousness and sanctification and wisdom? Is it, is it by an indiscernible, unfelt imputation where we read some verses and then claim to possess what we're not actually experiencing? Is that how he has made unto us these things? Or is he made unto us these things by the actual increase of his nature, his power, his government in our souls? I believe the scriptures are really clear that it's the latter. Christ is most certainly the sum of all spiritual things. He is the life. He is the power. He's the substance and reality of all righteousness, all wisdom and salvation. I want to be really clear about that. I, I don't think that anyone um, can doubt that or, or should question that. But the, the general idea in the church today seems to be that Christ is somehow automatically, kind of magically, poof, made unto us these things, regardless of whether his life is formed in us or whether or not we give up to follow him in the way of regeneration. Now, I believe that the scriptures unanimously testify, clearly testify, that Christ is made unto us these things according as the body of sin, the first fallen nature, the first birth, is put off, and Christ is put on. Or you could say, according as we submit to his fiery baptism, which thoroughly purges his threshing, threshing floor. Or you could say, according as the seed of his life puts down roots sprouts upward, and brings forth the fruits of his spirit in our soul, but not otherwise. Again, it is an attractive idea to the fleshly mind to somehow possess a righteousness that we don't really need to experience. That's, a, that's, an, that's an attractive idea to our flesh to possess a righteousness that we don't have to really experience or to be considered sanctified without having to change, or to be redeemed in the sight of God, even when we're clearly not redeemed from sin, vanity, foolish talking, lust, the love of the world, etc. I've been made to see and to feel that God sees through all these false fig leaf theologies sewn together in an attempt to hide our nakedness from his all-seeing eye. It is good and right to recognize Christ as the substance and reality of all spiritual things, but it is shameful and wrong to use this inc incredible truth, this remarkable, perfect gift, as a cloak or as an excuse for continuing in the nature that Christ came to destroy. Now, some have taken this doctrine or this idea as far as to say that Christians shouldn't even expect to experience a true transformation of nature, or that it's not important whether they do or not, because they say only Christ is perfect, and though we are placed in him and counted perfect because of him, we will always be fallen, miserable sinners in ourselves. This, though this idea has an illusion of honoring Christ— it actually greatly dishonors the purpose for his coming and blatantly contradicts the consistent testimony of scriptures. We are most certainly not meant 
to stay miserable sinners all our lives. We are meant, as Scripture says, in so many ways, in so many places, to behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord and be transformed into His image. We are supposed to put off the old man with his deeds and desires and put, off the, put on the new man, being conformed to the image of Christ, conformed to the image of the Son of God, sanctified entirely in body, soul, and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We are commanded by our Lord to be perfect, even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And we're warned that if our righteousness does not exceed the Pharisees, we will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. We're joined to the vine in order to bear his fruit, fruit that lasts and glorifies the Father. And though we indeed do begin our journey as miserable sinners, we're meant to be washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And we're supposed to purify, as it says in First um, Peter one twenty two. We're supposed to purify our souls in obedience to the truth, because as Romans eight thirteen says, if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. And in this way, we become dead to sin, not dead to sin in theology, but in experience. We become crucified to the world. We become slaves of righteousness, no longer walking as the Gentiles do in the futility of our mind, and no longer grieving the Holy Spirit of God. For Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1, uh, verse 3 and 7. And the Apostle John goes as far as to say, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. 1 John 3, 6 and 9. To, to any out there that might be listening to this or reading this document that believe that the finished work of Christ immediately and automatically perfects them in the sight of God, I humbly and lovingly entreat you to read Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and consider while you're reading it the way that Christ himself deals with his own churches by his own spirit. And tell me if there's anything in Christ's words that would lead any unbiased reader to conclude that these believers were already perfect and complete in the sight of God. Because here Christ he both he does encourage them, but he but he also strongly reprimands and warns his own seven churches, saying th- and, and we know that they're real churches too. They're the ones that he sh- that they're the seven ch- churches that he has given a lampstand to, that he shows us in the beginning. They're not false churches. They're churches that at least have begun on the right foundation, have received the implanted word, that have have started off in the right direction. And he tells them things like, I have not found your works perfect before God. Hold fast and repent. Or I could wish you were cold or hot so that then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Or you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and indeed have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. These churches are told to be zealous and repent and to buy white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, 
and to repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand. And there's a lot of other um, things like these that are said by Jesus to his own churches. And he always ends every one of them with uh, offering the promises of the covenant to those who overcome. And, and that, that always, that's the way he ends every one of these um, addresses to his churches. Now, in none of these remarks am I desiring to take any ounce of relevance or importance away from what Christ accomplished for mankind through his death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, I believe that my motivation in sharing and clarifying these things arises from a desire that none of us would mishandle the gift and miss the intended effect of his incredible sacrifice. Through the work of the cross, Christ has tasted death for every man that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. In this way, he has become the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. And by that one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. This is an incredible gift. But by these same verses, we can see that he is not the author of eternal salvation for those who do not obey him, nor does his one offering perfect forever those who are not being sanctified. Therefore, says nearly every page of the New Testament in its own distinct way, let us follow the captain of our salvation in the way that he has opened for us. Let us draw near in the new and living way that he has consecrated for us, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Let us deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness. Therefore, God says, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. I'm just going to conclude with a short quote from William Penn. He says this, However people may mistake, misconstrue, or misrepresent our views on this important subject, I pray that they would not deceive themselves in the great business of their own salvation, and while happily declaring that Christ has done all, be found disowned by him on the last day. Read the seventh of Matthew. It is the one who hears Christ, the great word of God, and does what he enjoins, commands, and recommends by his own blessed example that is compared to a wise builder with a strong foundation. No other house will stand in the final shaking and judgment. For this reason we are often plain, direct, and earnest with people to consider that Christ came not to save them in, but from their sins. Those who think to dismiss themselves from his yoke and burden, his cross and example, and secure themselves by praising Christ for his having done all for them, even while he has wrought little or nothing in them, nor have they parted with anything for the love of him. 
will finally awaken in a dreadful surprise at the sound of the last trumpet and this sad and irrevocable sentence, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I do not know you. May all avoid this terrible end by timely hearkening to wisdom's voice and turning at her reproof. For surely she will lead you in the ways of righteousness, and in the midst of the paths of judgment your souls will come to inherit substance, even durable riches and righteousness in the kingdom of God.